0: Welcome to the Consilience Podcast with John Onate. I'm an academic physician trained in psychiatry and internal medicine who believes having diverse interests enriches our lives and ability to relate to others. Through interviews with outstanding people in healthcare, academics, athletes, artists, and more, we can learn about these challenging times and how healthcare intersects with our society, sports, and the arts. This podcast is a work in progress, so feel free to provide feedback, and I welcome suggestions for future episodes. Welcome back. I hope you all are well. This is episode 13 of Consilience, and this is John Onate. And today, I am very proud and happy to introduce you to an amazing physician, Dr. Lakeisha Jarrett. She is a family medicine doctor in Wilmington, North Carolina, and also proud mother to three boys, and is married to... One of my um, good friends from medical school, Dr. Christopher Jarrett, who is also an outstanding orthopedic surgeon. And they um, have an amazing marriage and relationship. Chris has a a cameo in this, but this episode is really all about uh, Lakeisha. And I think she has an amazing story and perspective. She's an African-American physician, you know, born and raised in the South, very smart, intelligent, insightful, and has a really uh, important story to tell about how one becomes a physician in the South, her experiences uh, in medical school, residency, um, raising a family as Chris finished his training, and balancing um, her, as- her roles as, as a mother and and doctor in her community. She has an amazing sense of humanity and um, humility, and especially now in terms of the pandemic, I think has uh, an important perspective to listen to in regards to the Black Lives Matter movement, the intersection of police violence and um, systematic racism in this pandemic, so I think she has a lot to tell. So um, it's definitely worth a listen. I know this podcast has a lot of different um, topics, and that's a reflection of my own interests. but I think there's a lot to learn uh, from these pretty amazing people. Um, so anyways, um, ironically, when we were recording this, um, the, the fires in near Santa Rosa and Healdsburg were going on in late August, and... You know, a few weeks later, we're still dealing even more so with fires all over California, um, Oregon, and Washington State. We also have some hurricanes coming into uh, my old hometown uh, in Gulf Coast, Mississippi. So this is definitely a challenging time, and my thought goes out to everyone who's affected. Um, I apologize for my voice. Um, I've been somewhat delaying um, recording some of these intros um, because the, the fires and, and the, the amount of talking I have to do at my own work, I oftentimes have pretty strained voice. Um, so anyways, I apologize for the quality of it, and I will stop this intro um, soon, and, and we can get on to um, our, my interview with the great and wise Dr. Lakeisha Jarrett.
1: Um, hello, my name is Lakeisha Jarrett. I am a family medicine physician, uh, and I graduated from medical school at the University of Mississippi in 2000 with uh, Dr. Onate, and um, um, I don't know how much he wants me to tell by way of an introduction, but I can tell a little bit about my journey. I, um, oh, after- we have
0: plenty of time, so you can just... Okay. This might be the start of a book you should write, so, all right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I am, after medical school, I went to the University of South Alabama for my residency um, and finished up my residency in three years and stayed on as an attending. Um, There I taught residents and medical students. Um, And then we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, after two years of teaching there, where I taught residents and medical students again at the um, at Atlanta Medical Center's Family Medicine Residency Program, I really enjoyed it. But um, uh, we had a, a life changing event that happened mm-hmm. that made me decide that um, I. I was not going to teach anymore at that time. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then um, when I finished teaching also, Chris moved back to Atlanta at that time to start an orthopedic practice.
0: Yes. Right. He did, he was doing his fellowship in New York at the time.
1: In New York at that time.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, when he got back from New York, I started working for Grady. Mm-hmm which is very well known. It is a hospital in Atlanta that is a um, safety net hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was a very rewarding time. um, And I really enjoyed working there.
0: You did Um, inpatient and outpatient? Um,
1: Did not, no. I only did um, outpatient at that time. Mm -hmm. I actually did not have any residents or students at that time. So um, I did end up leaving Grady to go work for the DeKalb Medical Center, where I did have Emory medical students, and I really enjoyed that mm. um, for a while, too. And, and it's funny, I ended up circling back around and ending up at Atlanta Medical Center again, where I had pharmacy students, medical students, um, and uh, had a hand in the residency program again. And then we decided to move to North Carolina.
0: So, so your the initial so Chris's fellowship was two years, right? Am I am I remembering correctly?
1: Only one year.
0: One year, okay. So you did. So you're you had an initial kind of teaching faculty position, I did, and then yeah. and then something happened, and then you went just to more uh, community practice. Community, I
1: mean, yeah, for patients who did not have any insurance at yeah. all.
0: Yeah. No, Grady Health System is, 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 a, is a grand dam of, of health systems. And Grady Hospital is sort of, you know, it's the South's House of God type of classic, you know, Cook County Hospital type of, of uh, health centers. Um, very unique. It was you an know,
1: amazing experience. The yeah. patients were among the most grateful patients that I have.
0: Oh, ever. yeah. Yeah. You know, I've worked almost entirely in the FQHC. In, mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I think I'd, part of the reason I stay in it is, is because of the patients, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, just the relationships. So, so um kind of stepping back, I know something must've happened in the first few years. So we don't have to jump into that right now, but if you have, if you feel comfortable about talking about even in, in generalities of what happened, um, but it sounds like you, you initially wanted to do teaching and, and then mm-hmm. um, you did community practice and then you kind of, got back into teaching, right. when you, the second, when you returned back into more of a, a teaching role, uh, how was it different and, and did someone have to talk you into it or was that something that just organically happened?
1: It, it, it always happens organically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say more so um, we had a, um, we had a stillbirth at, mm. Yeah, we we had a pregnancy loss, and I was doing deliveries and Mm -hmm. teaching, and that just got to be something that I wasn't interested in doing anymore Yeah, at the time. I I don't think I was really emotionally able to do that at the time. So I've never gone back into the hospital to teach.
0: Got it. Got it. Yeah, since then. But do you still um, take care of pregnant women and things like that or do a, any FB I, obstetrics or
1: I don't do any obstetrics. Yeah. Any. yeah.
0: You know, Burke got out of that too. He did try to do it for a long time and it's just, it gets, it's too hard and our, where our health system is, I think it, it's too stressful for a family medicine doc to do, right. to try to do it all, you know?
1: And when I say uh, stillbirth, I mean, I personally had one not that. I've,
0: yeah, I can imagine that too. Well, I'm very sorry uh, that happened. But
1: um, yeah, it, it I, it was something that I saw myself doing for more mm. years, but at that time, I just didn't think I could continue doing it.
0: Got it. That's
1: One of fun. the most joyful things that I did as an attending at the University of South Alabama was to um, vaginally deliver twins.
0: Oh my gosh! Wow.
1: That that was a very enjoyable experience. So, yeah. um, so I I got to do that before I stopped and. You know, I look back fondly at my time of doing deliveries, but I, I don't think I'd do
0: that again. Yeah. But probably still helps in, you in informing your, your, um the patients you take care of and advice to pregnant women, just knowing all the steps and been involved in that and seeing, right. that, you know, I think that you still have to, a lot to offer and it's right. something, you know, in it's, in the news and, you know, something that we, we worry about is healthcare disparities, especially with African-American women and deliveries and with complications. And then I don't know if you've seen this recent, there's a new article that came out recently in the pediatrics literature about um, P- uh, African-American children who are hospitalized in intensive care unit, just in general, seeing there, that, that if there's a discordance with whoever their primary attending is racially, that it has an effect and outcome.
1: Um, Yes, article. Yeah, it was. I didn't
0: get to read all of it, but I did. It's. It's. I mean, it's. There's some methodologic criticisms there, but I I think the overall purpose of it, I think, is important. You know, Mm -hmm. you can you can quibble about, you know, the complexity of like who is actually who is actual in charge, a doctor in a in a hospital setting. I mean, if you think about it. If you get if we even if we have really good in health insurance, we know the doctors who get hospitalized are gonna have like a different attending every day. And it's it's so complicated now. Like, you know, right. but but anyways, but it's you know it's something that is important. So so you, um, I
1: will also say with all of my moves, um it has been a balance of motherhood and medicine. Yes.
0: Which,
1: um, which is, which is a challenge. Most of my moves have been um, related to stages in my children's lives and Mm. what they needed at the time. So, you know, I've always had to make sure that my work did not pull me away from them when they really needed me.
0: Let's, let's step back um, a little bit to, you know, can I give a, give the the listeners an idea of your, your family um, journey. So I, I, I can't recall, did, did you and Chris have uh, your first child during, while you were in residency together, um, or was it after?
1: Yes, we had our first child <laughs> during my third year of residency, oh. and I took four weeks off work. Wow. And I actually know it was two weeks. I took two weeks off.
0: Total. Because,
1: total. Wow. Because I wanted to finish my residency on time. Oh, got it. Yeah. So I took two weeks off and then I did an elective when I came back, which was a breastfeeding elective. Oh. I, wow. I did have to attend like cl- outpatient clinics and then I had to pre- take call and then I had to prepare a lecture at the end of the month.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, so uh, that was quite challenging. Our second child was born um, when I was an attending and Chris was still in residency. Mm-hmm. And then um, our child that we lost was Christopher. Mm-hmm. And I was years later when we were, I was in Atlanta and Chris had just made it back to Atlanta. And we have a third son named Jonathan, who was yeah. born in 2008.
0: Yeah. And yeah. if you can, I don't know if you have a public Instagram, but you know, if you can see pictures of this family, it's like the most beautiful family I've seen, you know, just, and, and I've really enjoyed from afar seeing your family grow up and a couple of times I've been able to see Chris on conferences. I think Chris came out here for a conference on a bike show or something like that a, a couple of times. Chris is, right. is ho- hovering back there in the <laughs> confirming these things. So
1: spends <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times.
0: With bikes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um I mean that's pretty amazing. I mean, in many ways you you did two full time trainings and jobs at the same simultaneously. And and your partner had to be in New York for a part of it as well. And
1: right. He still pays
0: for that. He still he still owes you for that, right? <laughs> around round the world trip, right, Chris? Is that the <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's a lifetime
0: debt. <laughs> of course, it's not really a debt. It's an investment, right? You know, but but how how did you do it? I mean, thinking back in retrospect, how, what was what was the the top three things that got you through it, and the, and the top three things that almost broke the camel's back, if you, in some ways.
1: Mm, wow, that's a lot. Um. I'd say the, the top three things that got me through it were my faith is mm-hmm. always the first thing that gets me through everything. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even my losses, um, my wins, everything, my, my faith gets me through that. Yeah. Um, the second thing that got me through it was just um, my love, and love for my family. And um, just with the understanding that, um, you know, the understanding that I am the only wife that Chris has and the only mother that the boys have. So um, I make sure that, um, you know, I I focus on that. Um, And the third thing that got me through it is the love of medicine. Like there's a lot of well, there are a lot of not so great things about medicine or a lot of things that need to be tweaked. Yeah. But when I am one on one with the patient. I love that. Yeah. If I didn't have to worry about insurance billing and. Um, the EHR you know, and <laughs> well, yeah checking boxes. And- oh, my gosh. Yeah. then uh, just the, the pure love of what I do is, is what gets me.
0: Mm. And, and, you know, as, as much details you feel comfortable or not, but like what were some of the things that, that were the most challenging during that time, balancing career and in your growing family?
1: Um, Oh, having to feel like, um, I, having to feel like I could not give my entire life to medicine. Well, mm. so not, not that I would want to, but I always felt that um, Chris has the opportunity to, to grow and, you know, to give lectures and delve into research and things like that. And I only have time. I really only have time to do those one-on-one visits. Yeah. And and come home and then take care of the family. So I feel like my career um, probably has not grown as much as it could have hmm. because I've made some sacrifices, but it's worthwhile. So I don't, you know, I, I'm not sad about it, but it, it's something that is difficult to deal with sometimes.
0: Well, so it sounds like when you first started out, you had kind of a traditional family practice, um, you know, you, you would, you know, see, you know, all ages, you know, and also do the obstetrics part and, and then deliver if it, if it worked out um, with the timing and things like that, I imagine. Um, and then that evolved to like doing more of just the ambulatory care. Now, are you, did you continue to see um, children and adults, or has that changed at all in your practice?
1: I, I still see children and adults. Yes. Oh, that's I
0: great. Still that's great.
1: From the cradle to the grave, family medicine. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, that, that's very enjoyable. Yeah.
0: You know, our family medicine residency program at, at UC Davis, they really kind of emphasize the, they call it the family and community medicine. And mm-hmm. so they really um, emphasize also the sort of, it's it's not public health, but it's it's I guess it's more like public advocacy part of it, community development as part of that. I don't and I don't know if that you know it's, that's really their their family medicine department is the one I've had the most um, experience with because where I did my residency, we didn't have a family medicine residency program at Rush at the time, um, and we have a family medicine psychiatry combined program, so I've I've been involved with with those residents for as long as I've been at UC Davis. Um, yes. we, was, we is, all, say again.
1: We all need that.
0: Yeah,
1: all medicine residents need that. I wish that I had done a family medicine site. Psych, <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Well, it's not too late. you you're young. You look young, and
1: of psychiatry. I mean, you know, I do a lot of counseling and listening, and a lot of mm-hmm. um, the issues that my patients have are mental health
0: issues. So. Well, you know, we have um so I'm I am involved in this uh training program for um uh, existing busy um practitioners in family medicine and medicine. It's called Train New Trainers. It's a UC Davis UCI program. Um it's one year. Um there's there's two weekends of kind of like a, of training, and then you get assigned a mentor and then you have uh some um you know weekly lecture that you do on online, but you get about 50 hours of CME out of it, but you get a certificate and you get really good training in, um, how to do primary care, mental health. And it's pretty comprehensive.
1: I will be sending you an email at the end of this conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's, um, (laughs) it's a really cool, it's a really cool program. And, uh, we have, you know, we have, Faculty from all over the country, so you, we could assign you to a faculty from from uh, East Carolina University and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you know about it. It's called Train New Trainers, and it's it's really geared to people like you, um, okay. because here's the, and I've been teaching that for five years. And one of the things I don't discount this, Keisha, you 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 know a lot about how to treat treat mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the things I've learned uh, from doing that program is that. Uh, primary care doctors have to deal with a lot of very, you know, intense mental health issues from substance use, a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, because there's, it's so difficult to get someone into mental health. You know, right.
1: You know. I've had so many, well, I've had at least, um, two patients that I can think of who have dealt with alcoholism and really just did not want to see anyone except for me. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I I do the best that I can, but I often feel like I need more
0: help yeah. with that. Yeah, so for sure. I'm
1: interested in that program. So
0: yeah, no, and there's a lot we do, we teach a lot on substance use, particularly in that too. Yeah. Um so so like um so you've How's so? You how long were you guys in Atlanta? I'm trying to remember, was it ten years?
1: We were um, in Atlanta for fifteen years. Fifteen years. Two thousand five, and well, no, 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 it wasn't fifteen years. It was two thousand
0: five until two thousand seventeen, so twelve years. Ah, twelve years. True. Yes, so you, I beat you. I've been I've been in Sacramento since my first job out of Really? <laughs> I've been, yeah, I've been here since two thousand five.
1: So years. Hmm. You've been there for fifteen years yeah
0: I've been here for fifteen. I'm full professor in the u c system now it's like it's a challenge I, you, know, if you, you, you know you you know not because anything particular but you know you do think about oh, maybe it'd be interesting to move somewhere else, but then like you your all of your uh, retirement and all that stuff, and they have a pension in the u c system and it all, makes it a more complicated decision <laughs> than it should <laughs> be i guess but um so so what, what triggered you, the move to North Carolina? Was it Chris's brother recruiting him to the ortho group? or, <laughs> or uh...
1: that, that was it, pretty much. <laughs> it, it was all Chris.
0: That's pretty awesome. See, I've a whole episode on Chris. Chris is, a, is an orthopedic surgeon, shoulder specialist, right? I forgot what your fellowship was in.
2: No, I, I did a fellowship in uh, what's called adult reconstruction. Oh, adult yeah, it's primarily hip replacements and knee replacements. Oh, hip so and knee
0: replacements. Oh, that I have a lot of runners. who watch this podcast; they'll they'll have a lot of questions. I'm not I'm not letting you off the hook. You know, just just bring that up on the side. But so, what do you what do you do? And and you live in Wilm, Wilmington? Where you live on the coast, right? In North Carolina, is that right?
2: Yeah, we landed, we landed in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, as John mentioned, my brother um, is an orthopedic surgeon, also, Claude Jarrett. and he was on faculty at Emory University. Um, well, at the time we were in practice, but well, I was in private practice, and he, um, you know, kind of went through the stages where he decided to leave academics and go to private practice. Yeah. And we recruited him pretty hard to our to our group in town, and he was about to join us. And then we kind of realized that Emory had a non compete clause, which, which is kind of a common thing in medicine. Oh gosh! And yeah. he would have to leave town for a couple of years before he could come back and practice with our group. Yeah. So, so as part of that. You know, his wife is from just outside of New Orleans, so they thought they'd move closer to New Orleans and be closer to her parents. And they talked to a recruiter and interviewed with a bunch of groups in that part of the country and just never really found the right fit. And his the recruiter said, well, what about Wilmington, North Carolina? And he says, no, no, that's the wrong direction. You know, we're trying to go closer towards New Orleans. And the recruiter pulls the, uh, oh, it's a weekend at the beach. What have you got to lose? They'll you know, fly you out and hang out at the beach for the weekend and then. You can tell them no on Monday. So he came out and they hung out of the beach and never looked back. Ah. And see, yeah, flash forward a couple of years later, he gives me a call and says, um, Why don't you come join me? And I said, No, I'm waiting for you to come back to Atlanta. He says, I'm not coming back. This is <laughs> nice. So we came out and we took a look around. We fell in love too. And here we are. That's
0: nice. And you've been there for five years now? I
2: think. No, we've been here for, we've been here going on three years three now. Three years, okay. We had our third hurricane last week. So, oh, yeah. you know, that's been a learning experience.
0: See, I grew up on the coast. So I could give you advice on that. You, you basically <laughs> just, you got you to gotta get like one of those really expensive Yeti coolers and just, uh, the, the worst part is the refrigerator if your power is out for a couple of weeks. That so, is the so ab, absolute we're, worst we're, part
2: we're, of it. We're looking into the world of whole house generators. Apparently that's a thing.
0: Well, I you can get a, get a Tesla wall. That's what I would do get a couple they're on sale right now, yeah, get it in and you get solar panels um, well, chris, since you you jumped on and um just for a quick uh shortly won't you won't you introduce the the other half of the uh well, Jarrett superpower super twins, not really twins, maybe <laughs> <that's> the wrong <laughs> wrong analogy <laughs> so.
2: well um, I'm dynamic chris- duo. <laughs> I'm Christopher Jared. I'm the lesser half of, of Chris and Keisha. I'm here as the, in a supporting role. Um, Keisha and I met in medical school. We sat next to each other in class, and um, and she let me, you know, copy her notes and study off of her. And four years later, we got married. We actually got married on graduation day. That was when John was there. You remember that? That yep. Those, yep. Uh, we got married on the day we graduated. And then uh, we did our residencies together and in Alabama. Her residency was three years and mine was five. And so for the last two years of my residency, she was the boss and she was the attending. And then um, uh, we, we that's, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, we moved to Atlanta uh, where she took care of the boys while I was in New York doing my fellowship. And, and
1: worked a job.
2: <laughs> yeah. And before I moved back to Atlanta and joined uh, the a practice there.
0: So so what was the how did you how did your relationship survive that period uh, to me that sounds like be the uh, the most stressful part on a on a marriage would be that exact scenario
1: so so I didn't get to tell you the things that almost broke us so <laughs> um when he came home and tried to change the way I was doing things because I set up the house in Atlanta and we had patterns down mm-hmm. and then he would come home and want to do things his way. So that, yeah. that was that was the thing that almost broke us.
0: I'm laughing here. <laughs> what was the uh, what was the most difficult uh, transition and behavior? What was the, <laughs> was it something to do with bicycles? <laughs> Chris is a bicycle fanatic. That's why I'm. The
1: bikes didn't get involved in our relationship until um, I didn't start having to share him with bikes until about maybe 2010.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Well, what was What was the hardest, uh, the behavior and the, was it just the routine, the schedule, like when the kids would go to bed, when dinner was, was it stuff like that or.
1: It was, that was it. When the kids would go to bed, dinner was I mean, I had been pulling a lot of weight, of course, um, for a year. But my aunt, my Aunt Daisy, was always there to help me because she lived in Atlanta. And my sister-in-law, Azari, were always there to help. So I think maybe, too, when Chris came home, they stopped helping as much because they were like, oh, you have another functioning adult in the house. And, yeah, I think... uh, Chris was still enjoying
0: New York life. Yeah. So, so do you have, did any of your family follow you to land? I know Keisha, you're from North Mississippi somewhere, I think if I'm remembering I'm from, correctly. Yes. Starkville. Is, which yeah. Is North-
1: you were, yeah. Starkville. Yeah. <laughs> is, so, um, no, Chris's mom was already there, Chris's sister was already there, and Chris's brother moved to Atlanta the exact same time that we
0: did. So you were surrounded by Jarretts. So
1: I was surrounded by Jarretts when he what? left me in Atlanta. I knew how to get to his mom and dad's house, his sister's house, his brother's house, and my aunt Daisy's house.
0: So the Jarretts too are that's an intimidating group. I Chris, Chris is, Chris is like, you know, he's, he's super smart. He's a, you know, orthopedic surgeon, his brother's an orthopedic surgeon, but you know, his, every person I've met from his side of family are, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to Harvard or I'm a, you know, his dad his uh uncle. I stayed with his uncle in Chicago when I was interviewing for residency. He was like a high risk OBGYN, I think, or something like that. And, um, they're all from, uh, Sierra Leone and, um, and the, um, uh, so anyways, they, we could have like a whole podcast and I probably <laughs> want to schedule one just on the Jarrett's it's a pretty, pretty remarkable family.
1: They're, they were pretty, they're pretty nice and welcoming though. But, uh, yeah. Well that's
0: good though. You had, you had help though. You, it wasn't like you were alone while Chris is away. So oh, that it. probably helped a little bit. no. no.
1: Um, but it was just hard to dr- transition back, I think, to uh, living as a couple. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it, yeah. it must have worked out because you're, you're still here and you're sitting by <laughs> <Yeah>. each other. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so I, I don't remember any of these challenges. I thought it was pretty scary. <laughs>
0: Think that, that's a typical um, uh, husband response right there. Everything seemed fine, you know.
1: Maybe if I got to live in New York by myself for a year as a married woman, but yes. living myself, then I would feel the same way.
0: Well, you know, with TNT, if, <laughs> once we get past coronavirus, you can fly out. Uh, we usually have one of the weekends in Hollywood or Southern California, so you could have a weekend there, so... <laughs>
1: Nice. Very nice. I'm looking forward
0: to that. <laughs> well, Orange County, you know, so you can get, enjoy a little bit of beach life that way. Yeah. So, um, so what are, what are you doing now in, in, um, in North Carolina? What's your, what's your practice like? And are you teaching still or involved in that or just, just a routine I'm, private practice?
1: I'm doing routine private practice right now. Mm. Um, I was actually working three days a week um, Mm. as transitioning the boys to North Carolina has been a bit difficult. Mm. Um, And I just wanted to make sure once again that I was there for them to give them what they needed. Our oldest son moved, we moved him to North Carolina when he was 16 and it was in the middle of his 10th grade year. Hmm. So he never really made a lot of friends in Wilmington. Hmm. Um, you know, that was kind of a challenge for him, but he had lots of friends back in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, and he applied to the School of the Arts in Winston-Salem and ended up moving to Winston-Salem wow. for his 11th and 12th grade year to that program.
0: Is that a, is that a, a private school or is it a state, like one a, like a magnet state- school?
1: They run boarding school wow. for um, autistic kids, and he um, he is a visual artist. Oh so,
0: wow. wow! Yeah. So he wants to go into become a, a an artist or uh, do visual right. effects.
1: Right, Chris and I's child wants to become an artist. That's good. <laughs> Yes, and we we've embraced it.
0: I have to connect you to my friend Susan, who I just interviewed. She's a professional sculptor and uh, in up in Yale. She's had okay. a lifelong career at. So you can.
1: Well, he is actually at Virginia Commonwealth now. Um, um, and Virginia Commonwealth has a great art program, and yeah. he's an art program there for college.
0: What, what's, what's his media like? What is he? What type of art?
1: He hopes to be doing communication arts. Hmm which is basically um, comic book arts and illustration.
0: Oh, that's cool. Nice. Yeah,
1: That's what he wants to do.
0: Oh, you yeah. must be proud though. So.
1: I am proud of him. Um, and he's a very, he's a good boy. So yeah. Jacob is uh, our middle child and we moved him here when he was 13 hmm. and he's um He went to a small private school in Wilmington for one semester and then transitioned into high school. Um, And then our youngest is Jonathan. And he went to a public school in, um, in the area and it did not work out for him. And Mm -hmm. so he ended up going to a, um, a small Catholic school downtown.
0: How was a, how old was he when he when he moved and tried tried out the public school?
1: Um. So I want to choose my words carefully here. He. Um, oh, you don't
0: have to. It's all right. You can be honest. You know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we. Uh, I we mean, was he
0: like in seventh grade or eighth grade or something like that?
1: Was Jonathan was in third grade?
0: Oh, third grade. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. And he went to the the best school around, and it was um, he was one like the only black kid in the whole. Oh program.
0: yeah. You know so, that that's, that can be hard. You know, I was the only Filipino for many years growing up in Mississippi, and mm-hmm. like and like elementary. I just remember it's in elementary school, like, and kids are cruel. And not even from a, uh, they do it just because you're, that's the novelty of it sometimes, I think. It's just, you know, it's so, you know, being, looking different. And, and I still had that, you know, I I had a, it it is, it is very difficult. And actually, I did this similar thing, but the reverse. I actually transitioned out of private school because it was, it was, that was more the issue. I was like the only Asian kid. Um, And then transitioned into public school because it was a little more diverse. Yeah.
1: Well, things aren't the same here because I I don't know. You know, well, you know how um, real estate is now, and how
0: it ties um, into the schools.
1: Ties into the schools, yeah. Right, and that's how people keep their schools segregated. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's just yeah. Right. So So, how's he? He's doing better in the private school than I I assume. He's
1: he's doing much better. He's much happier. He's in a, a pretty diverse private school. He's still the only black boy in the class, mm-hmm. but there are Asians in his class. There are Latinos in his class. I mean, his, his class is
0: super more, diverse. more diverse. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And um, so, so in that's middle, like
1: sorry, the middle child? In, yeah, the middle child, I didn't say much about it, but he got into the North Carolina School of Science and Math, which is also a boarding school. And he'll be leaving us oh. in durham
0: and what's so this is actually a good way to kind of transition into the coronavirus part um, how are they so they 're both going to boarding schools what 's it, it going to look like with the pandemic is there is you know Is it still going to happen or is there is it been modified in any way?
1: Our oldest um, is in college, like I said, at Virginia Commonwealth. We took him two weeks ago. Um, They had to perform a a COVID test Mm. before they. And um, he has a single room. Okay. And they wear masks everywhere. And um, three of his five classes are online. And the others don't meet every day. But so okay,
0: so it's like a hybrid system, and okay. But
1: he's an artist, and I figure, you know, with an art, being an artist, they have to have some in class. Um,
0: yeah, depends. Yeah. You know, if it if it there's so much you can do drawing wise on computers, they might be able right. to do some of that virtually mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the boarding yeah. schools are those. Do you the have any board- concern?
1: Jay, uh, the middle child is going to. Um, they are doing six week um, with ha- six weeks with fifty percent of the students, mm. so that they have their own room, and then six weeks with the other fifty percent of the students,
0: and then it's online when they're not in. There. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. but that gives
0: you a little bit of break. So I guess that way. So
1: that <laughs> his PE class is archery.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so exactly. you're gonna have to you're gonna have to build an archery uh, range in your backyard so
1: chris likes to build stuff
0: so maybe hey you know chris that's the new hip thing anyways if you want to get out of bikes is, is archery <laughs> that is like the new archery. sport I've
1: you, you can
0: get you can get into so <laughs> much technical detail with with technical bow shooting and there's a lot with uh mentalization and um different forms of uh of uh Kind of how it ties into mental health, the process of of archery kind of gets really? you in the present moment because you, because every, it, any, any tension you have in the body, any, any change in your breath will, will throw you off uh, on your target shooting. So, really? Oh, yeah.
1: that's my take there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it's, a, it's, um, I, I'm one of my mentors before I went to medical school. He was a family medicine doctor in Hattiesburg and he was huge in the bow hunting and it was all on just the being in the moment and the breath control and the physicality of it. And, and, uh, but he bow hunted all over the world. It was, he was in, in, at the time, he had like all these, he went to Africa and did bow hunting and stuff like that. It was, I, I didn't really can relate to it at the time, but he was, he was way into archery and all the technical mm-hmm. stuff of it. So well let's um so how you know how has um the pandemic rolled out like how has coronavirus in in both of your practices and and personalized how has how have things been in in north carolina
1: so um in our practice um, we we're, we work for a very large group mm. so lots of different offices. And they were able to designate one or two offices as offices that were dirty or offices where people could go who had COVID symptoms. Yeah. Um, and, and they didn't allow them in the building, but they set up a tent outside so they oh, could yeah. test those patients. Mm-hmm. And um, the office that I'm in is actually one of the clean offices. So mm-hmm. they do lots of screenings before the patients come in Um the other thing that we did was um, cut our providers in half Mm. so that um, on Mondays and Wednesdays I'm seeing patients virtually from home and Tuesdays and Thursdays I'm in the office so that we don't have as many patients coming into the office and in the waiting room at the same time.
0: That's very similar to what we're doing in Sacramento for a lot of, I mean, for two months we were like all almost all tele televisits and then we sort of reopened in may um mm-hmm. and we actually have a tent too uh, the army mm-hmm. national guard loaned us a million dollar i mean this thing looks like out of out of outbreak or something like that it has like a pressurized exam room and
1: <laughs> I, yeah, but that, that is that nice our tent is not that nice
0: but yeah i mean it has its own power system and ac and filter right. in a HEPA filters. I mean, yeah, it's, it, 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 yeah, it's pretty, um, I, yeah, I don't think we would, we wouldn't, I don't think we bought it, but they, they're, they're lending it to us for through the pandemic, which is kind of nice to have a little bit, a little bit of overkill, but I, I don't know. I've had a like, I've had like four times where someone's like, I don't know if they're lied, but you know, patients, they decided they just want to get in the building. So they'll just say no to everything. And then they're, right. and then I come in, they're like coughing and it got a fever and I'm like, oh, great. So I just, I just I kind of go in like hot zone for every patient, no matter what. I
1: I stand six feet away from patients until it's time for me to do the exam and I make sure that it doesn't take more than 30 seconds. Um, It's just very focused. Um, My my patients have noticed the difference though. One of them kind of called me me out about it. She said, well, you're just not as friendly. And I'm like, Uh there's a global pandemic.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> we can um, we can do this virtually, and then we can chat as much as you want. So, it's like <laughs> and I tell them that all the time. I said, "Oh,
1: if you want to see my smiling face? And you want to chit chat? Yeah. Then you should come virtually next
0: time." Well, I, I can tell you one thing. To I, I don't know how involved you and Chris are in in state in organized medicine in in North Carolina, but I, I tell you, it's one reason to get involved as a as a physician is to advocate to not let this kind of go back to the previous. I think there's the, the parody with, with televisits. There's so much you can do with televisits, you know, it's, um, and, um.
1: Good point. I have wanted, I've actually wanted to do televisits for a long time. uh, Um, and I was trying to ask my practice if I could do televisits with, with a different group. Because in Atlanta I took care of a lot of flight attendants. Mm-hmm. And when I was getting ready to leave, a lot of them asked me if I would consider continuing to take care of them because they use telemetry. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I could never get on that platform or figure out how to make that work with my job. So now I'm doing it and I'm very happy about
0: it. Well, you so. could you could make the jump to concierge practice. I think you would you have a lot of experience and you would do very, you know, you might, you might be surprised. <laughs> um, and I
1: wouldn't be able to take care of some of the patients that I want to take care of. Yeah,
0: like, that's true. Yeah.
1: You know, a, medicine sounds good, but I'm a softie and I like taking care of people who, who need me a little bit more than that. So. Yeah,
0: no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a challenge for okay. sure. I, 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 I'm worried because like I know like some of the UCs have they even some of the universities are are kind of I've heard stories that they're forcing some of their doctors to take on some concierge patients <laughs> even on really? you know oh yeah yeah it's um but um yeah. I mean in some ways psychiatry is has been concierge medicine from the get go. I mean one of the one of the things that's always frustrated me about you know the practice of psychiatry and, um, is, you know, about half the people who graduate from a psychiatry program do pro, don't participate in, in the healthcare system in a normal way. They don't take insurance. They don't take Medicaid. They don't take Medicare. Um, they take, they, and, um, they can, you know, because there's so few of them, they can, they can, they can actually, you know, have a good, a good, um, they can support their practice and lifestyle with just a cash only service.
1: Right. Um, which is why family medicine ends up doing a lot of that.
0: Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, mm-hmm. that the, the barriers that, well, I mean, part of it's also, there's a lot of parity issues. Um, then the the number one carve out for mental health is Magellan. So I bet a lot of your patients who, in North Carolina, their, their their mental health side of it is, is Magellan and that I'm when I was a residency, they had like a team of lawyers whose sole job was suing Magellan to get reimbursements for our inpatient psych unit. They, mm-hmm. at one point they, they were, they owed five years in back payments for it. So imagine like every inpatient, you know, they didn't, if they wouldn't pay for it and that that's the problem also where there's ne- a lot of negative incentive to try and mm-hmm. do specialty care. And that's where like um, I really am trying to, pushed on the California side for parity, um, you know, between mental health and other, other specialty services.
1: Yeah, I'm, so, I'm pretty about mental health too hmm. because I've had some things that have happened in my family with that also. So
0: so is your group tracking um, people who've recovered from coronavirus or doing anything special for those who come up positive?
1: Um, we are tracking positives, but I don't think we're tracking the ones who have recovered from the virus. Mm.
0: Cause there are some, some, um, uh, sequela, like I've heard like, well, kind of chronic shortness of breath and, and fatigue is a, is the most common mm-hmm. one, but especially people in their thirties and forties, they, they actually have a lot of micro, um, they have a lot of uh, clots and stuff that may not readily apparent that also can play out. And, um, and then there's some, um, for those who are hospitalized, there's a lot of depression and anxiety in those, Mm -hmm. those patients after they've, after they've recovered. Um,
1: The the political aspect of COVID has made it very difficult for people. You know, people are embarrassed to get it. They're they're anxious about being shunned from society. And,
0: oh gosh, yeah.
1: The secretive in the secretive secret nature helps to encourage the spread. Mm. You know, heard um, you know my mom told me that she heard that someone had COVID, but they don't want to tell anyone, and you know it's all hush hush and a whisper thing. But yeah, I think that it should be knowledge that people should know about it so that it won't spread
0: totally. And also we can learn about it too. I think that's the most important thing. And, and, um, and understand like
1: afraid to will get tested.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, tried to reach out cause I heard, I mean, I just saw on a news report. Our medical school is just being hammered. You remember that, that new five story ICU that they, they built after we graduated. Completely mm-hmm. filled. They converted the whole thing to COVID, and it was filled. Mixed. Yeah, because yeah, Mississippi had the highest per per high, highest infectious rate for their for the population size over the mm-hmm. and over over August. So it's but in fact, like the the dean was on Rachel Maddow. It was kind of funny. My mom texted me thing like, <laughs> you know, just about how how bad it is. Um, but I think it's this mixed messaging. I, I think it's hopefully this- we have.
1: Very confusing for yeah,
0: us. Yeah, I think hopefully, I think, I mean, we really need to have like sort of like a, a Kennedy assassination type um, kind of, you know, soul searching and and congressional hearings after all of this plays out and and really try to come together and like we need to have a better approach to it. Because it's going to happen again. I mean, it's just inevitable. If It could even come back just as, as a bad flu season. Like we've really lucked out on on flu. So, Mm -hmm. well, um, and I know the other, you know, other thing kicker that happens too is in, you know, George Floyd hits and there's this huge upsurge and interest in, in systemic racism. Um, and you know, that's I I personally, I, I, you know, I, I was kind of torn. I really wanted, um, really supported all the protesting and stuff like that. But then the, the physician side of me <laughs> couldn't help but think like, Oh my gosh, this thing, horrible thing happens. And now people are, are the only recourse is to go out and protest in the middle of a pandemic. And, and, um, but I think one thing for me that felt, felt different this time is just how it's not going away. Like it's just, there's a, there's a, a momentum to it and, you know, uh, maybe some cynics would say, like, "Oh, it's because it's an election year or something like that." But no, it's, it it seems different. And I have friends all over the world. I have friends like in New Zealand, and they they're having Black Lives Matter protests in Auckland, New Zealand, in in uh, because of what happened. So it's it's really, I think it it's struck a nerve about. You know, this is this is something we have to to at least be more open about and talk about this. And
1: totally agree.
0: Yes. Yeah. And so we, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Uh, I know, it, you know, it's, you know, it's not, I'm not trying to get you to be real political or anything like that, but you know, what, what, what's your viewpoint with all of your experience and where you've grown up?
1: Um, I, uh, of course I have, three black boys yeah. as I did before and they, they are always um, you know when I look at them, I always see my babies. Mm. So um, and, and the fact that society sees them differently or sees them as a threat just yeah. because of their skin is just um, it's unbelievably unsettling for me on a daily basis. Um, when George Floyd died, I was still in the process of um, thinking about Ahmaud Arbery. Like, I, I had yeah. not from that. So, um, you know, just the fact that those three things happened so quickly, Ahmaud Arbery being shot in Georgia and Breonna Taylor being killed in Kentucky and George Floyd being killed. It, um, it was heavy, very Mm -hmm. heavy.
0: And Breonna Taylor, we might not even heard about it if it wasn't for George Floyd in in some ways, like it it wasn't getting a lot of national attention until after the fact.
1: And, and I've always, I, since I've been in um, Wilmington, which is a very, um, Wilmington has um, been a segregated city in the past, and it was actually a coup mm. in 1898 where um, racists overthrew the government in Wilmington, oh. North Carolina. It was the only place that it happened in the United mm. States. Um, so there's a lot of racial history in Wilmington, um, so we go we are part of the Episcopal Church and I love being a part of the Episcopal Church. Um and the church that we go to is predominantly white. So mm. even before this, we were doing a lot of work on uh, racial reconciliation.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, you know, I have a lot of friends that we had book clubs and had lots of discussions together and we were doing a lot of work together. And and um, you know, they they reached out to me after all of this was happening, but um it it's sometimes I just didn't even feel like I had the energy
0: yeah.
1: to to deal with that. And I just want what I wanted to do was to just keep my children at home
0: and yeah. protect. It's like almost a different type of a pandemic that targets just them in some ways.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. then I I mean, and it's been going on, you know, the first time, of course, that I, the most jarring experience to me was Trayvon Martin, Mm. who was, you know, just a kid who looks like my kid walking to the store to get some Skittles and being killed. Um, And then I'll never forget watching the video of Philando Castile being killed.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So... You know, in all actuality, I I have not watched George Floyd's killing.
0: You don't need I, to. It's, I could not. Yeah,
1: because I feel like every time it's just taking a piece of my soul. Yeah. And uh, I know you know about Aces. Mhm. I, I I feel like you know I'm some sometimes I just continue to hammer away at myself and my, and my, um, health.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that it's, how are you, I mean, I'm sure your kids have questions about this and you, and they, they're, they're of such a wide age range and developmental state. Um, have, have you had conversations with them about your fears and your feelings and
1: absolutely, absolutely all the time. Uh, my 18-year-old, um, <laughs> you know, they, they process things so different. His
0: mm-hmm.
1: his idea was he thinks that he might want to do law enforcement because he wants to change things from within.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I don't know with the current way that things are set up in law enforcement that one person can make any change like that.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: My middle child is very, um, very well read and he he has a lot of great opinions and he has written essays and just just to get his feelings out. So he's, yeah. he's processing in a different way. Um, And then my youngest, I, I don't really know. He's 11. So we talk about it but I I don't think she's really formulated any opinions yet.
0: Have you changed any of your, your kind of house rules or expectations with them? Oh, absolutely. Like what, what, what is, I I think, um, I mean, here's the thing Um, you, you and Chris are, you know, you're an African-American family who are, are also two professional, um, physicians who are very successful and, you know, have a, you know, middle-class, you know, upper middle-class lifestyle in in a predominantly white area. Um, and, and, um, but you both have also went to medical school in Mississippi, you grew up in Mississippi, you know what it's like to grow up and and still live in under uh, systemic racism, even though in many ways you're the ideal. I think this is what, you know, when we, I've been on a lot of committees about how do we increase diversity? Cause UC Davis struggles with this. They struggle with recruiting African-American students. They struggle with recruiting African-American residents. Um, and they're, you know, they've been far more uh, effective in in the Hispanic population, I think, but it, but they really do struggle with, with getting strong. And they've, they've made some improvements, but it's like, um, I think part of it is because if you look at like people who go to medical school, I think that I saw a drawing 80% of, of people who actually make it in medical school, regardless of what your race is, come from two professional homes. Like it's very rare for someone to be like the first doctor in, you know, in out of their family, if they, you know, or to well, not, not, you're, I, you're uh, an exception. You're the, you're, you're, I mean, that's what I think you you should say. Oh, I'm sorry. You broke up. <laughs>
1: Oh, I was just saying that I am the first doctor in my family and not the first professional. My father was a teacher. So mm-hmm. that, that was very helpful.
0: And that was um, a struggle, right? Like when I was talking to Ray, he, one of the things he was telling me, like, even though he did really well in, in high school and, and college, he, you know, he would have guidance counselors telling them not to go that route. That was too hard. Did you experience something like that?
1: Well, um, I went to a, an HBCU.
0: Mm. what What's I went,
1: that? I went to Xavier University, oh, okay.
0: least,
1: which is number one in sending African-Americans to medical school. Hmm. So no one ever told me that I could not go to medical school when I was in college.
0: How about so, high school? Did you run into any barriers?
1: No. Uh, but did you know, John, high school was different then. Hmm. Uh, we often talk about the fact that we were at the pinnacle of integration. Mm. When we graduated in 1991, our school was very integrated. It was about
0: 50-50. Yeah. You know, my high school is that too. You know, it's so funny. I I, I don't know if you noticed on Facebook, I posted that picture from high school. And and, yeah. Yeah.
1: and now things are swinging back in the other direction to where mm. schools are segregated. But wow. I was... Um, You know, I was probably the, I was a person that a lot of science teachers and math teachers offered opportunities to.
0: Mm.
1: Like whenever there was any type of program or um, anything going on that you could recommend someone for, a lot of times my teachers would recommend me. Mm. And the other thing was that we lived near Mississippi State, so they had a lot of programs for minorities that I participated in. Mm. Yeah.
0: Wow. So, so you, that's good.
1: State, really good job of, um, I, I think Mississippi state is, is trying to do a really good job with uh, racial reconciliation.
0: That's good to hear. So like fast forwarding now, like what, what do you think we need to do to, to, uh, to improve diversity and, and get more, um, you know, to make our physician force look like America in many ways, like in terms of diversity, how, how, how do you think we should do things?
1: Um, I think that, we need to do a better job of educating um, that, that education needs to be better. Just yeah. public education needs to be better.
0: Yeah.
1: That we don't need to rely on standardized tests so much.
0: Yeah.
1: Because standardized tests do not necessarily mean that, um, that you know, the fact that you can do well on a standardized test, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good doctor.
0: And, and the funding shouldn't be based on your zip code. Like, I think the fact that so much of it is, you know, the quality of your education is so impactful by the average selling value of your, the property value of, of the houses surrounding there. Just, it, to me, that's a, the best example of institutionalized racism. It's, a, it's, 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 it's designed to keep segments of the population in ghettos, essentially, and right. to, and to not have pair and, and, and not to have parity in, in that. And, and the way the whole tax system, the way, um, houses resale value, some of so much of it impact, you know, your, your ability to make profit off of owning a home or even this idea of like making profit over, off of home ownership based on the school zone, uh, perpetuate, you know, perpetuates this, uh, right. issue.
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, as far as medical school, um, that is the only thing that that I can see is just improving public education and yeah. giving it, and and not like I said relying on standardized test scores so much. Yeah.
0: I, I think the cost too. I I think you know this is also something people don't like to hear, but I, uh, as much as you know, maybe it's you know maybe we're just not having we're not we're not not only is it we're having difficulty getting people with diverse backgrounds, but I think it's, it's difficult if you, unless you come from a wealthy family to even think about a 40 medical school, it is, it is so much more expensive now. And I think our generation, like we went to the university of Mississippi and um, all four years of our medical school is less, it's probably two thirds of what one year of medical school is in most you know, around the country, if you look at the average cost, it's it's staggeringly more expensive to go to medical school, um, and and also the way these finances are regulated, we had a lot more advantage. You know, we we had you know it was it was there was a lot more of uh, you know sup- fully subsidized loans were more available, Pell grants, all that stuff has has disappeared, and so students now are getting their interest rates are, are, are occurring before they finish gross anatomy. They're really? already, yes. It just, uh, yeah, it just, every, every semester just starts accruing from, from the very beginning. So it's, 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 um, it's very different financially. Um, the, the cost of medical school is, 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 is staggering. And I think that has a big impact as well on who, who chooses to go into medicine. Um, right.
1: That's
0: definitely just going to perpetuate people yeah. with, with and all Yeah. And, and all of it comes from these budget cuts have to come from somewhere. I mean, this, that, that came from a democratic administration. We can thank Bill Clinton for setting that stuff off <laughs> when he revised the uh, federal student loans and, and, and even Biden, you know, he signed off on, on a, a financial, uh, a, 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 um, a series of laws just before he left office that um, basically allows uh, you can't, you can't go into bankruptcy over student loans. You can't, you know, it, it you know, and I've, and I've actually tried to help a couple of patients get out of their, their student loans. And it's like, I mean, it makes, it makes like a social security form look like paper cake. I mean, you literally, they want to know every, you know, they want to have all this documentation to get just to have somebody be able to um, who's permanently disabled and can't work, get out, you know, to not be uh, have their SSI payments um, levied, have put money taken out of their SSI payments to pay off a student loan. (laughs) It's crazy. Anyway, that's an aside. So, um, well, I know we've, we've been talking for a while and um, I wanted to sort of, Kind of end on a on a few um we talked about some heavy subjects and i really really appreciate you taking the time uh to to share your story i think one you you, you're people should know about you because you're an inspiration of the type of physicians we should have um to show that we can um, not only get through adversity but we can thrive through it um and And also the complexities of of raising a family uh, in this country, especially uh, um, an ethnically diverse uh, and african american family how the challenges that happen even when you have all the- resor- you have a lot of resources it's still a huge challenge um, what are What are some advice like if you were going to talk to you know the Someone like, you know, how you were in high school, like a high school student, an African-American girl who wants to be a doctor, like what would be the biggest advice you would give her? Thinking about everything you've done now.
1: Um, which I, I do this a lot, but if I could talk to myself um, in high school, I would just tell myself that there are lots of women like me out mm-hmm. there and who want to be physicians and who are going to be physicians and that I can do it and to persevere and um, be confident.
0: Good. Good. Do you do any, um, have you done any community speaking or mentorship for in, in I, the area?
1: Or I mentor, I mentor a lot of students. So most of the time it's just people who come to me and ask yeah. me a mentor children. One of my mentees just got into medical school. So oh, that's excited. nice. Um, but I, I don't really do any community speaking.
2: Uh,
0: you should think about it. I think um, people should hear, hear your, your voice. And I'm, has it said, so even with George Floyd, has any community groups reached out to you? Um,
1: I've been on the news. I've done two. I've done one podcast one news show, and one newspaper article.
0: Ah, there you go. Oh, yes. you wrote the newspaper article?
1: I was, in, I was interviewed for the newspaper. Ah,
0: okay, okay, okay.
1: That's yes. good. Yes.
0: Well, so, you know, hopefully people will reach out to you. I think you, you, you're a big inspiration, so.
1: Sometimes it's not publicity that I want.
0: Yeah, okay. I, I know. I can understand. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a challenge, you know. Yeah. It
1: is a challenge. Yes. Yeah. So,
0: um, yeah. And you know, uh, there's been a lot of negative stuff happening, you know, in the world, uh, in our country, and our community. Um, but is there anything that's bringing you hope right now?
1: Can Chris answer that first?
0: Okay. Yeah, Chris. Okay. Both of you answered it. So
1: <laughs> I'm gonna let him answer because I, I I have some things to say, but I'm gonna let him talk first. What what, what gives you hope?
2: Um <laughs> I,
0: yeah, I I'll
1: go first. I'll put yes. it on the
0: spot. You know, I, I I warn, you know, for those of you who like you're not the first person to kind of like, oh, I don't know how to answer this, but I I I let you guys know I was like every person I interviewed So you don't worry, you're not the first person to be like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs>
1: um my once again, my faith gives me hope. Mm. So um, I find that when I surround myself with positive messages that I am much more hopeful, like um, our Bishop in Atlanta, Bishop Rob Wright, and he has a talk show called Four People. Mm. So, um, you know, I like to listen to his, his podcast because it's very positive and, um I like watching watching the National Cathedral Services because mm. they are also very positive. But the other thing that gives me hope is my friends. Like, um, you know, as I stated earlier, I have friends, I, I have a lot of white friends who are working toward racial justice mm. and they like to send me messages, they check in on me, they ask me what I'm reading. And, you know, if I have any book recommendations for them. So um, just the number of people who are just really working to understand why there's racial inequality in the United States and how we can really fix it. That gives me hope.
0: Wow. That's that's really that brings me a lot of hope to hear. Because I, I hate to say it, like I hear a lot of the opposite from some from my faculty members who are really just distraught over everything that's happening. So no, that's 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 really good. What what are your book re- recommendations? What would be a, a book recommendation?
1: Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite books um, was uh, Heavy from mm-hmm. last year. So that was written by a young man from. <laughs>
0: I know, that we're was, doing the same thing. Chris and I think alike. So
1: from Jackson, Mississippi, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that you would enjoy So I'll link that.
0: that on the I'll link that the uh, how to get that uh-huh. as a as a recommendation. No, that's great.
1: Yeah. That was one of my favorite books from last year. And it talks about um he went to Millsaps, talks about some of his uh racial struggles there, but it mm. really just talks about growing up. Black in Jackson, Mississippi. So it was, it
0: was a really. Oh good wow! Work. No, yeah. I, I would like. I, I have a lot of fond memories of Jackson. Um, so I'd like to read that in general, anyways. I have a lot of fun memories for our class. I think one thing, you know, just just talking to you both, and you know, I had I interviewed um, David Kirk a few episodes oh. ago. Okay. You know, Is
1: it it just also
0: he's a he's a director of intensive care for Wake Med. Okay, okay. you guys should reach out for him. You're you're not that far from each other. So.
1: Our, a good bit of time at Wake Bed last year, so
2: we
1: need yeah. to, we need to reach out to Our our um, our oldest was a skateboarder and a cyclist, and he had a couple of accidents.
0: Oh, I time. I did that. I I I tried to jump off a roof into a swimming pool when I was your oldest kid's age. So no, I'm I've, I'm I'm. Oh, please, John, don't say that. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have I saw the scars. <laughs> I chipped the tooth. I have a fake tooth uh, from it. So. <laughs>
1: Well, oh, okay. I won't
0: complain about his biking and skateboarding accidents. Uh, you know, you got to get it. You know, he, Chris, Chris knows this. You have to use the body, right? You get the, you have to keep Chris and guys like Chris in and, and, uh, you know, keep them, give them a job, you know, make sure they have something to do. You know? So, so. Right. so um, Chris, what do you, what are you hopeful for? Or did, yeah. Cause I don't think you, you answered the question
2: one because you know I'm, I'm a lot more cynical i think than lakeisha and so um i just i just find a, just a tremendous amount of solace and just being able to wake up next to lakeisha every day and see her and see her fight and struggle and i just find hope in her
0: wow well, well you you both are i mean so you know we went to medical school together you're you you 2 are my probably closest you know, some of my closest friends I remember are from medical school, and and um, you know, John. I think,
2: do you realize that you introduced me to sushi <laughs> and fancy, <laughs> and fancy coffee? Yes. Or you had coffee you with milk oh, and sugar. You awesome, I you drink cappuccinos and espresso. I
0: know, and- I know, it's my my fault. Yeah. Look, well, you, uh, you. I, I, I've, I've gotten into buying a bunch of. Expensive wood wood firing uh, cooking equipment. So if you want to give another,
1: also used to cook on the smoker, and I would never Yes, forget
0: yes, that. I had that. Yeah, I, I actually sort of got back into smoking during the pandemic. I've been cooking a lot more at home. Yeah, um, Many
2: party on the balcony, drinking wine. Yes,
0: <laughs> that was those are the days. You know, our but class you, was pretty diverse in some ways too. I thought you know like. Not just, you know, ethnically or culturally diverse, but we had like I think we had a pretty wide widest age range, right? We had Arshna, who was she was twenty when she started or nineteen. And then we had Martha, who was like a journalist, and I think she was forty five when she started medical school. I mean and then um the vet. Um the veterinarian. Remember him? Mark. Mark something, yeah. yeah. He yeah. was I mean, older. He and Martha are about like in their mid forties, maybe older, when they started medical school. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, it was a, and we had a lot of engineers or people had careers before going to med. I, I, I always felt like we had a good, we had a good class, and you know, we survived a lot of craziness. So, <laughs> different times,
2: and we also, we also have two trombone players in our family. Now just played trombone through high school, and now Jonathan just started playing
0: trombone. Oh, excellent. Well, um, really enjoyed catching up with you. And uh, hopefully, in a couple of years, you can, once the coronavirus is uh, under a little bit of control, you can come out to California and celebrate something, or maybe Absolutely. we can. This video and podcast represents the opinion of Dr. John Onate and his guests. The content is provided only for informational, educational, or entertainment purposes. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions or concerns. Views and opinions expressed by the host and guests are our own and do not represent that of our place of work. While we make every effort to ensure the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. I do not receive any income or gifts from the pharmaceutical industry. I have no financial conflicts to disclose in relationship to the content presented, and if I do, I will present at that time. Thank you.